Welcome to Block Stars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders in crypto and blockchain to discuss the basics of these technologies, the current landscape, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz. I'm joined today by BRD Wallet CEO Adam Trademan to discuss crypto wallets. Great to have you on our episode, Adam. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. So, Adam, BRD Wallet was the first crypto wallet released in the App Store back in 2014. Tell me about BRD Wallet. What makes it unique? Well, yeah, we started way back at that time as an open source project. And my co-founder, who was a real UX-focused mobile app designer, uh, actually, he had the number two app in the entire app store globally in 2009, released the BRD Wallet as Red Wallet back on the first day when Apple reopened the app store for Bitcoin and crypto apps and uh, quickly garnered a lot of interest, especially among the Bitcoin maximalist community, because it was a pure decentralized wallet implementation kind of just like Satoshi wrote in the white paper. And because of that, and the fact that it was really easy to use, uh, it became really popular as a, a easy getting started spot for new users to Bitcoin. So that's been six years. I guess things have changed a lot. Gosh, it's hard to believe it's been that long. <laughs> yes. Today, uh, the company has about 4 million customers in 170 countries, and our users combined have about $6 billion U.S. dollars worth of uh, crypto assets that they protect with the BRD app, including XRP. Let's help any of our listeners who might not know exactly what we're talking about. So what is a cryptocurrency wallet? What do they do? How do they work? What purpose do they serve? Uh, good question. Think of it like the physical wallet that you've got in your pocket or your purse. Ideally, you know, at least in the way that the white paper originally talked about cryptocurrencies, that wallet is very much like that physical wallet that you have, meaning that it physically holds cash, which you control and you possess. It can't be taken from you unless by force. And it's something that you can hand over and pay for any product or service or, uh, you know, pay for a friend share an Uber, something of that sort, right? So the function of the wallet is really to manage your digital asset. And if you think about what you use your, your wallet or, or even your bank account for today, it's actually fairly simple. It's, it's paying friends and family. It's receiving your salary. It's paying for other goods and services like paying off a credit card. That's exactly what the vision for a full functioning wallet um, should be. So I'm sure you've heard the expression, not your keys, not your coins, or not your keys, not your crypto. You want to tell people what that's about? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, David, um, you're right. We heard that a lot in the past. We don't hear it much anymore. And I, and I actually think it's a good thing that we don't hear it anymore. Because I think if, if crypto is really going to go towards mainstream adoption, people shouldn't be worried about the, the safety and security uh, of their assets. Very much like, you know, at least here in uh, the United States, we're fortunate to have a reasonably stable banking system. So we're not quite fearful that money's going to disappear out of our bank accounts. Although hard to believe that in, in the modern world here uh, in 2020, even, you know, we've seen things like that in other countries. But, but anyway, the idea is that if you don't have your private keys, meaning if you're not physically holding your crypto asset, which is like holding physical cash, mind you, right, then, um, you know, you're basically leaving that money to the custody of someone else. And there's uh, suppose, you know, a potential risk associated with that. But it's important to sort of quantify that risk, David, because if you think about it today, most of the earnings that folks like you or I or the listeners may have are being custodied by a traditional bank holding that fiat currency. And we're trusting that bank and things like FDIC insurance in America, you know, work to kind of protect and give us sound mind and we can sleep well at night. One of the original advantages of cryptocurrency is that notion of financial freedom, where you can hold your money and you can take it anywhere you want to go. And we have continued to provide that type of service with the BRD wallet. It being non-custodial means your private keys are right in a hardware encrypted chip on your phone and you hold that money. 
No one else is holding that money. It can seem a little scary at first. You think, gosh, what if I lose my phone? Am I going to lose all my money, right? Well, if you did lose your wallet, you kind of do lose your money, right? But fortunately, technology allows us you know, a way to securely ensure that even if you lose your phone, you can get access to your funds. But we, the company behind the wallet, can never get access to your funds. So that's kind of the tension, right? Like if somebody else is responsible for my funds, well, they can be professional about it. They can spend all their time thinking about that security model. Whereas if I'm responsible for it, how much effort can I put into keeping something secure? And I have to worry that I'm going to make a mistake. So can we have the best of both worlds? Yeah, that's that's exactly the, the, the holy grail. And that's exactly what we're working towards. And I think it's a, it's a combination of maturely developed um, applications and software that really have a focus on mainstream um, user experiences that you know, anyone who uses cash can use, including grandma, right? As well as state-of-the-art security so that you can get the best of both worlds. I would say that we're getting there. However, I would say case in point, we're not using cryptocurrency at Starbucks every time we buy a coffee. And, um, you know, as a result of, you know, maybe part of the reason behind that is user experience and the sort of customer advantages that might be offered through something like what we're talking about. I would say that even in countries where you have runaway inflation or you have situations where bank accounts get haircut by the local government, such as what happened in Greece years ago, right, during that meltdown over there, even in situations like that, I think you still see Greek uh, folks today going to the banks and depositing money, right? So the real question to me there, David, is do people really feel that pain? Are they really scared of that or or not? And that's why I said these days we hear less about those types of sort of older Bitcoin phrases, such as if you don't hold your own keys, you don't hold your own money. Because I think that what we've realized as an industry is that the general consumer populace is more interested in other aspects and advantages of cryptocurrency and less interested in that sort of notion of financial freedom, right? And they're less political motivated than a lot of early Bitcoin people. And they're more um, personal and consumer motivated, which frankly, I think they should be, right? I mean, we're, we're not here for ideologies, at least at the BRD wallet at BRD. We're not here for the ideologies. We're here to provide good value to consumers and companies alike. Well, so then that suggests the obvious follow-up question, which is if the value proposition isn't you don't need a bank, you're in complete control of your own finances, you're doing everything yourself. The value proposition is something else. It's in the user experience or what, what is the value proposition then? That's right. So for, for a digital wallet or for the BRD app specifically, right, a simple on-ramp in order to get started with crypto. So it's very easy to use. It's frictionless onboarding. When you start the app, there's no need to register. You don't need to input a lot of information. You can very quickly get a wallet going and your friend can send you some XRP or some Bitcoin or something of that sort. So you could see what that experience is like with digital cash. And then from there, you can invest. So you can start trading. You can start looking at purchasing other assets. And this today, this notion of speculative investing, really, to be honest, as I'm sure you're well aware, is the primary use case for a lot of cryptocurrency. And and so that's sort of the, the number one reason why people get interested in, in our wallet, as well as I think when they go to an app store and they search for digital asset wallets or crypto wallets in general. Then I think when you go beyond that one use case, that's to me when even more exciting ones come to arise like remittance. And I, I know today, you know, Ripple technology is used all over the world for remittance and our app is used for that as well. People sending money home to their friends and families abroad. And so then, you know, those sort of, you know, use cases, there's, there's more after that, right? There's, um, you know, all sorts of online transactions and things of that sort. But I think if you look at sort of the, the main reason why people use our app today, it's because it's just really easy to get started, no matter which of these end sort of scenarios you have in mind as a user.
So can we also make the point that this becomes a way to get sort of the benefits of a financial system, even for people who don't have access to banks or a traditional financial system? Can this bring down the cost to provide services like remittances and digital money to people who might be in locations in the world that aren't well served by the existing financial system? Another huge use case for the VRD wallet is those folks who don't have bank accounts who can log into our app. They don't need to have an ID. They don't need to register. That doesn't mean that it's anonymous or any way non-compliant with laws and regulations. What it means is that because it's non-custodial, you're holding your own money. You know, you, you're not required to provide all of that information that you would otherwise be required to provide to a traditional bank who does hold your money. So what that means is that if I'm in rural China or Africa, where shockingly a huge percentage of people don't have bank accounts, but gosh, over, I think, 65% have smartphones, right? And that number's probably grown since I saw the... Um, saw the statistics. And what you find is that they could download our app, somebody could send them some, some I could send them some cryptocurrency, right? And then they could they could go spend that, for instance, to buy a, a cow in their local village and uh, change the life of their family and the local village forever as a result of that. And otherwise, they would have to do that with cash that they might literally be hiding in their home, which is certainly dangerous, especially in that kind of environment. Or another type of digital asset technology, maybe like cell phone minutes, which is kind of an older for sort of stepping stone that was used in Africa in order to facilitate exactly this kind of use case that you're referring to with the unbanked. And because cell phone minutes went down to almost nothing in value, that digital asset doesn't work very well for this anymore. But crypto does. But but I would be remiss and sort of not doing my duty, David, if I didn't mention that as exciting as that unbanked sort of use case is, the one thing that I think people in that kind of a situation don't want is volatility. And so I think that's where these, you know, um, stable coins, which you can access, which you can buy and sell in the BRD app as well, provide a really great solution there. So they can actually hold that in, in something of fixed value. Right. Makes it easier for them to hold assets that they can use for payment. I think, I think you would agree that BRD Wallet is a crypto product and you're kind of a crypto company. And I think we're also seeing sort of non-crypto businesses and products like Robinhood, for example, also giving people exposure to cryptocurrency, although probably more on the speculative investing side and less on the sort of payment side. How would you contrast like those two groups of services for consumer adoption? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great, by the way, to have companies like Robinhood or Fidelity, you know, in, in gosh, how long has it even been? Maybe uh, this year in 2020 or maybe in 2019, starting to offer these types of services. The reason I'm really excited about that is it just makes it easier for all sorts of consumers all around the world to move value from fiat currencies into the crypto space. Right. And once that value gets moved in, then market forces will determine which experiences, which wallets, which investing platforms, which payment platforms uh, users end up choosing to use based on what gives them the best user experience and what gives them the best potential benefits. Things like maybe rewards, you know, like points that we have in, in airline miles and that credit cards and that kind of a thing. And so we have taken learnings from the traditional payment space and investing space and tried to implement those into the BRD app. Things like having a rewards and loyalty program where you can get special benefits, which we do have in the BRD app today. I think for the, this generation, especially the millennials, these are the people who go to the app store for everything. These are the people who shop based on search results, right? And so you, you, know, you go in there and you type crypto wallet and you see the BRD app come up and then you launch that. You have a, you have a mobile life as a millennial, right? Everything's done through your phone, right? And you go and, and, and you go through something with easiest user experience because I think especially in this sort of generation, it's sort of a headline focus, less attention to the, the details, more attention to right now what's here and what's the value 
I think the, I don't know, maybe it's the actual physical display on our phones that has actually moved people that way, David. But the point is they expect quick results. They expect fast. They expect a great user experience and they expect to be able to accomplish what they want very quickly. And that's what we offer in the VRD wallet. And so those are the kind of users I think that this resonates best with. They come to us through the app store and then they download the app and they get started right away. It's a lot less overhead, a lot less friction than going through a traditional investing platform. So we have these traditional platforms that are kind of bringing people who want maybe a little bit of exposure to crypto in from one side. And on the other side, we have these sort of crypto first platforms that are interacting with traditional finance through stable coins or, or remittances. So are we meeting in the middle yet? Yeah, we're starting to see some overlap in the Venn diagram, but I think it's very little. And in addition to that, I think it's not even so much about the overlap. You want to have a little bit of an overlap so that you have a bridge. But I think that what you'll find is that value, imagine two balloons, right, connected together. Value at some point will start shrinking on the fiat side and start expanding on the crypto side. In fact, I think case in point, since I got started in crypto in 2014, when there was only, I don't remember now, a few couple billion dollars or a few hundred million, I think, actually a few hundred million in USD valued assets that were in cryptocurrency. And now, you know, it's in the, in 2020, it's in the billions and billions. And it, it shocks me every time I go to CoinMarketCap and look at those numbers. It's, it's already started. So I think there is some meeting in the middle right now, but I think there's a long way to go and a lot more opportunity. So what do we need to, to grow this? Is it technology? Is it tools? Is it better connections to the existing financial system? Is it user experience? The use cases for things like remittance or the unbanked and whatnot are way larger, I think, than the speculative use case even. So it's also going to take great software and user experiences, and it's going to take new companies to come and disrupt and replace old traditional companies, just like we're seeing now in the remittance space with companies like TransferWise or technology from companies like Ripple, which is transforming remittances across various corridors. Unfortunately, though, it takes a lot of time. It really does. There's a lot of inertia in money because of that same thing I mentioned before. People have this fear. They don't want that value to be lost. So this is a transformation over decades, not a transformation over years and not a transformation over months like Instagram. <laughs> yeah, one issue we've heard a lot about is the difficulty with adopting blockchain technology, finding qualified developers, understanding how these technologies work, the fear of getting things wrong. Uh, that's why I was excited to hear about Blockset tools uh, and a blockchain data integration platform that gives developers a simple API. Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, Blockset is BRD's enterprise SaaS product. Essentially, we looked at our the success of our consumer platform and the fact that it's proven in production with 4 million customers. We've never had any customers uh, who have lost funds or have funds stolen within the platform. And we took the, the back end of that that software technology. And we realized that that really would provide great value to uh, enterprises who are looking to build blockchain-based software, whether it's about a use case like speculation or remittance or just providing crypto banking services. And so we took it and we productized that backend. And like, like you said, it, there's a lot of confidence that our enterprise customers can get because of the fact that this is being used in production today with so many customers. It's not just about the safety of those funds. It's also about the fact that there's no point in reinventing the wheel once uh, a company's already done that. And then in addition, instead of having to take the time that they would normally take to spin up nodes and do integration on all these different chains, we provide just, as you said, the single unified API, which allows them to access uh, any blockchain, including uh, XRP actually as well. So that software um, is sort of like an AWS for blockchains 
or for blockchain sort of functionality. And today we've got large uh, banks um, and uh, other accounting firms and system integration companies and other large software companies that are dipping their toes into blockchain, starting to use our platform in order to accelerate the developments of those apps. And that's actually another good point too, David, kind of from the technology side of things. When these sort of catalyst platforms start to pop up, it can spur an innovation and help things grow dramatically as well. It's kind of like putting kindling on a fire or there's a lot of dry powder, right? And you light a match nearby. That's, I think, what these platforms are like. It was the same thing when, uh, for example, say web technology came out on top of TCP IP. Yeah, I think a lot of people also don't realize that the maintenance burden can be enormous. Keeping a platform reliable, when you have a problem with it, you have to retain the people who understand how to troubleshoot and analyze it. When there are changes in the underlying blockchains, you have to make sure that your platform remains reliable. It seems like being able to offload that to a company that specializes in doing that is a lot more efficient than everybody trying to maintain their own platform. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. But just like in the early days when everybody had their own computes farms and their own, you know, colo facilities and all of that. And they thought, well, we want to maintain control. You know, there is security benefits and all that. But look at what happened today with Azure and AWS. You know, by 2020, I don't think now anybody does that so much internally anymore unless there's special applications for it or the costs are just too high. But it's it's more than that. It's also that if you work with a third party like BRD, we can provide SLAs to five nines. We have POPs in, you know, three different regional um, geographies across the globe. We can do more at scale, I think, than a lot of other companies could unless they're a Fortune 100 company, for example, and it would cost them a lot more money to do that. So just like something gets outsourced like AWS, you can actually achieve a higher level of functionality and therefore offer your end customer a better product or service as a result of using a scalable platform like Blockset. I know like like I am, you're primarily focused on crypto as a store of value, means of exchange and these financial applications. But I feel like I should ask you about the sort of utility phase that people have talked about about cryptos. I know some of those applications have been absurd. But like, do you think that there are applications for a blockchain and cryptocurrency type technologies outside of the financial space? Or is that just too crazy? Not crazy at all. I, my gosh, to me, that's like us talking if we were uh, did a, a, a um, flashback to I don't know, let's see, when was it that I got involved in the internet, you know, in the late 80s, um, and do a flashback there and we say, well, should it be used for anything other than um, IRC for chatting and uh, maybe, you know, for some basic email or something like that. And I look at it and I think, gosh, can you imagine all the things that have been done today and all the positive changes that have been made for the world. And I'm not saying they're all just positive, but there have been a lot of positive changes. I think you're going to see the same thing here with digital asset-based or blockchain-based technology. One of the ones that I'm excited about is um, identity and identity verification. I think the idea of being able to um, you know, use a blockchain, an unmutable blockchain for identity provides a lot of benefits, not only tangible like things like monetary savings or you know, getting your IDs uh, faster or getting your passport faster, but actually security and social benefits as well, such as being able to provide um, identification to those who don't have it today, or being able to more easily and more safely traverse the world. So I, I think there's a ton of different possibilities out there. And I don't think that we in our lifetimes will see even the tip of the iceberg. Sounds exciting. I'm glad you brought up identity. Obviously, people are very concerned about privacy, particularly when it comes to movement of money, but also just in general with their digital life and the interconnectedness of all the different things that we work with. And especially in the financial space, there's anti-money laundering regulations, know your customer regulations. There's all kind of regulatory rules like the travel rule that controls information that has to pass between financial services. Uh, what's What's your experience been like with regulatory compliance? 
Well, I would say that there was this sort of historical perspective amongst early crypto folks and crypto companies that Bitcoin or crypto in general offered an alternative to all of those things like regulatory compliance. And I think that perspective is, is incorrect. I think that if you really look at sort of the original vision for crypto, there were a lot of financial privacy focus, no one can take your money away from you type of benefits. And I'm not saying that those don't exist. But what I am saying is that if you want to run reputable businesses in the modern world, you really you have no choice other than to follow uh, local laws and regulations and compliance. And we certainly do that at, at BRD. The trick is this, David, the trick is create the right user experience where the user doesn't have to feel the friction of, say, uploading video selfies, right? Until they're right at the stage where they want to do something that requires that level of regulatory compliance. And traditionally, the old financial system doesn't have that separation. Meaning if you go to the bank, even today, 2020, and you try to open a bank account, you are going to be stuck there for an hour going, through all these different verifications and then it takes days to get everything started and, and all of this, right? And so there's no idea or concept or notion of you being able to like quickly get started and then provide that information later, say, when you have your first transaction or something of that sort. But we can do that with modern technology and we can do that in a digital asset space. So I think that for better or for worse, consumers and enterprises are used to the traditional AML KYC and other sort of regulatory aspects of the um, traditional fiat-based banking and finance system. And I think that we in the crypto and digital asset industry will continue to uh, comply and we will continue to follow those rules and regulations, but we'll just do so in a way that makes it a lot easier for the customers and makes them feel those things less as they should be sort of in the background, right? And not get in the way of the actual user experience that the end user is trying to achieve, whether that's investing or sending money back home abroad. Will there be privacy benefits or benefits of control over information for the consumers, not just these of you? I think so. But I think the way to think about it would be to model it based on what we know today in the old world. So for example, if I have physical cash in my wallet, in some sense, that's private, because I can literally give that to whomever I want without any know your customer or money laundering checks, whether it's $20 or $2 million, right? Now, I, I may be uh, labeled a fool for walking around with $2 million in cash, right? That's another story. But the point is that aspect of privacy does exist today, even in the fiat system. And actually, there's evidence of countries trying to remove that. Um, recently, what was it? And was it 2018 or 2019 when India was um, removing some of their physical note currency? And we've heard similar things from China in 2019 about the digital RMB, which I, I have a lot of opinion on as well, by the way. And so I think governments are, are working to remove some of those last bastions of privacy, actually, in the traditional system. And I think that as they close those sort of, you know, covers, if you will, or close those loopholes, I think that that's going to uh, eventually kind of boil over and roll over into the crypto space as well. The, the fat of travel rule really changes the notion of how people can send cryptocurrencies around also, right, by very needing to verify information on both sides, like a traditional wire transfer. So I think you're going to continue to see regulatory AML, KYC components of the fiat system sort of inch their way towards the crypto system and continue to sort of impress upon the crypto industry these requirements to get it to sort of look and feel more like the traditional fiat world. And it's not clear to me that except in the fringe, right, with other digital assets that are privacy focused, like a Zcash or a Monero, except in that fringe, I don't think we're going to see a lot of significant privacy focused features going forward. So Adam, I have insurance at my bank account that protects me if the bank does some shenanigans, goes out of business, gets hacked, and I 
I have a broker and they have some kind of insurance. I don't know what the detail is, but I really don't worry about like my broker stealing my money or going out of business or getting hacked because like there's infrastructure there to protect me. On the cryptocurrency side, we don't have FDIC insurance. We don't have whatever it is that protects, you know, stock traders. Is that an issue that you're actually seeing? Is, is there a solution? Well, those are interesting interrelated questions. I mean, is it an issue today? I, I don't think it's holding back the industry en masse. Maybe from an institutional investor perspective, their requirements are a little bit higher in terms of the protections they want to see with those companies that are going to be um, investing or holding their assets. From the consumer perspective, I think we're so used to putting personal information and transferring money to you know fintech companies um, that we only see through their mobile apps, who we've never seen physically or at a branch or something like that. That mindset has already started to shift in that direction, so people are more comfortable with that. However, we are seeing some companies in the crypto space start to offer you know, insurance type products that are disconnected from things like FDIC insurance. And uh, that could be an interesting aspect of this as well. But I, I don't think that's really what holds people back. I think what holds people back is just more the overall comfort level with using and, in, and investing in something that is just somewhat unknown to them. I can't tell you how many times I still get the question, like, what is Bitcoin? Or what is what is a digital asset? What does that mean? What is its value, right? So there's more fundamental questions, I think, People come to that question of, well, wait, is it insured? I think a little bit later than the kind of more basic one, which is, what am I buying? I heard this thing goes up in value and I can make money. So it's about building consumer confidence and understanding. Yeah, and, and we're really focused on that at BRD. I mean, the UX is really the primary sort of showcase that you have to try to help and educate potential users or investors in that use case. And uh, to that point, um, we try to take great care of our customers at BRD. In fact, uh, just last weekend, I was literally here in Tokyo and got a phone call directly from a user in Kansas. And I, my phone rings and I pick it up and, and he says, I can't believe you answered the phone. And I said, to whom am I speaking? I had no idea who it was. It did, I don't know exactly how he reached out to me, but he did. And it wasn't that he had a problem with the app, of course, more it was that he didn't understand something. Why, why you know, isn't this working or how is this supposed to work from the perspective of getting like traditional fiat into, into cryptocurrency? And it, it reminds me, actually, many people probably don't know this, but years ago, BRD, we used to um, we used to run a, a free like 800 number, which was sort of like a cryptocurrency hotline that people could actually call for free. We would spend 10 minutes on the phone with anyone who called from anywhere in the world and just kind of help and educate them. And everyone in the company, I, I <laughs> this is our, our plan, had to answer the phone for certain blocks of time so that no matter if you were an engineer or you were you know in management, you have to sort of experience that because I want everybody to understand the mindset of the customer. That's how we're going to build better software. Right? And I remember I once got a call from a retired military um, officer in, Phili in the Philippines. And he says to me, Adam, I just spent all night uh, reading cryptocurrency for dummies. And I have questions, but I want to get involved in this. I, I'm interested. I, I, I want to I invest in crypto. Can you just tell me about some things? Can you just talk to me? That's what we need to solve, is that education, getting people comfortable, right? And then that'll open the door to another set of questions about things like insurance and safety and all of that. But we, we're not even that far yet as an industry. And so th there's a lot of greenfield out there. So it's May of 2020 right now. We're in the midst of the COVID-19 global pandemic. I think I'm locked down a little bit more tightly than you are since I'm in California. But um, how do you see this affecting the industry? And how do you see the industry coming out of this? I think right now, uh, first of all, from the perspective of the virus itself, 
and the notion that it's passed through physical proximity or physical touch, hence social distancing rules and whatnot. That is a potential significant accelerator of contactless payments. Here where I am presently in Japan, I can tell you that many parts of the country right now are offering a government-backed savings of 5%. On normal purchases, say at a convenience store, when you pay with something cashless, such as a subway card or such as an NFC-based credit card. And so that kind of a notion, that acceleration of things that minimize contact would be great for the payment use cases of cryptocurrency. Now, that doesn't mean that at the convenience store today, I can go pay with XRP or, or Bitcoin, right? But what it does mean is that things are moving in that direction. I think the biggest shock to me was seeing the original draft of the first stimulus bill in the US, including that concept of the digital dollar and talking specifically about digital wallet technology as well. I'm very interested to, to, uh, to see a future stimulus bills, um, which are being discussed you know, right now, this month in May, 2020, will include such a concept. So I think little sort of outside events that we can't predict, like a global pandemic, could be catalysts for these things. But in addition to that, I also feel like there's another sort of layer there. And that is a lot of people are working from home right now, and they find that they're sitting at their computers or their phones a lot more, and they're doing things that they didn't previously have time to do before, like checking on their investments. And they're thinking, gosh, with all this volatility in the market because of COVID-19, you know, maybe I should look at something else. And so, for example, for the BRD app, um, you know, we, we've had all-time highs in terms of user engagement every month since this started from like monthly active users and volumes of transactions. And I I look at it and I think, well, I I hope that people are using the technology to to do things that the COVID-19 situation might be precluding. For example, they can't travel home with an airplane, so they're sending money instead or something of that sort, right? And and I'm glad that the technology can be used, but I think a lot of it is just speculative asset stuff too. A lot of people at home right now with more time on their hands and they're thinking, how can I invest my money? And so I think, you know, that's another catalyst that is unexpected, but could be something that helps to accelerate and grow the industry as well. So let me ask you on the payment side, we probably have governments around the world that are considering stimulus type payments to their to their citizens, they have large unemployment payments to make. Are cryptocurrency applications like BRD Wallet ready to handle those kinds of applications yet? Or is it just a little too soon? Well, when it comes to our specific technology, we, we don't uh, um, have support for fiat currencies directly, except through stable, you know, pegged coins, right? Um, like TUSD, for example. And so as a result of that, for a stimulus check to go directly into a digital wallet today, you would need to have that connected to a a bank account. In fact, I think that would be required in order for the IRS, who's paying the stimulus checks, at least in the U.S., to to check exactly who you are. And they trust the banks to have done the AMLKYC to ensure that your social security matches your identity and whatnot. So if they were going to send it via direct deposit, ACH, into your account, or they send it into a mobile app, you know, in some sense, it's sort of the same thing because all banks have mobile apps today. I think they're not really digital wallets in how I feel about a digital wallet being more decentralized, right? But from the end user's perspective, the general consumer walking around waiting for that stimulus check, they don't really care about that difference necessarily, like I was saying earlier, right? Rather, this is an opportunity to accelerate the notion of using digital software and apps to to hold money so that it's not only receiving the stimulus check there, but then I don't have to go to the bank. I can use the app to make payments, for example, or I can use the app to um, to go shopping at the point of sale with a contactless scan or something of that sort. I think it's more about To be honest, David, it's more about the psychology shifting the mindset of consumers and of big companies than it is about literally receiving that stimulus check 
in any particular form. I think um, some people would have expected uh, like a global disaster like the pandemic to have caused a, a new bull run or a tremendous increase in price. The narrative of a safe haven asset has at least changed a little bit as a result of the pandemic. Do you think that that's made things better or worse for crypto? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that if you look at the market volatility that we've seen in Q1, Q2 of 2020, in crypto markets overall, we saw a little bit different behavior than than what I would have expected. And I think what you're alluding to previously, it tended to be sort of a asymmetric and uncorrelated asset class compared to say stock markets or bonds or something of that sort. And in this case, we saw everything fall across the board. I think because in our lifetimes, and I'm not, <laughs> I think you and I are probably similar age, David, in our lifetimes, we haven't seen something so, you know, impactful on the, on the world. And as, um, you know, unfortunate in its in its impact. And so I think that just kind of pushed the psychology down of, of everything. So, you know, in that sense, though, what goes down must go up, or what goes up must go down, which is it? Well, it's both, right? And I think that you did see a resurgence in crypto markets, which to me was more about the 2020 May halvening that just occurred versus, say, some sort of a mindset about the correlation of crypto to to equities. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the traditional narratives didn't hold up in this kind of one-off, you know, extraordinary event. That's right. And then the human psychology goes into people like to just sort of mob and, and, and heap on, right? When something goes down, it just gets pushed down more and more and more. And um, unfortunately, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like in situations like that, those who win are really the institutional investors and the bankers who have direct control and access to a lot of money. And it's the individual consumers who are trying to you know, do some investing that end up losing out. And so I, you know, I, I am glad that at least in the in the crypto space, we haven't even seen as much volatility as we've seen in the traditional commodity space. It's it's a it's a crazy day when I tell you that I think crypto is a safer investment than some of those traditional <laughs> commodities. So we're just about of time, Adam, tell me where do you see the industry in the next five years? What what experiences are users going to have? What are we going to do for consumers? I think one of the biggest changes, David, is that as a result of several of the things we've talked about today, I think there is going going to be an increased um, speed of evolution of national currencies over to digital form. And I think China's leading that right now with the digital RMB. For some reason, I don't think the world fully understands yet that in five years time, if you want to do business with China or Chinese company, you're going to need to support that digital asset class. And they're not necessarily just going to put that digital asset class on traditional, you know, rails like Swift or, you know, payment rails and whatnot. And I've seen evidence of that myself, you know, being over in China before the COVID-19 crisis. So I think China leading that wave and then other countries, probably like the U.S., following through, as we got hints of in that first stimulus draft bill, is going to really help to change and evolve the mindset of the end users and large companies. And I think that's going to do a spawn a a new generation of technology that's going to facilitate making it easier to interact with all these digital assets. And what that's going to do for the industry is, you know, I look at the crypto industry and the companies like BRD and Ripple today as sort of the early internet companies that were there you know, in the late 90s, right? The Yahoo's, the Amazon's, the Ebay's, the PayPal's and whatnot that ended up being able to sort of provide these foundation level platforms to spawn entire new businesses that we couldn't have even dreamed of at, uh, at the time. So like I said, you know, crypto sort of a long term game, David, I'm sure you agree. This is not something that changes the world in, in weeks or, or months or even in just a couple of years. It's going to be a while. But I think we've made greater progress as an industry in helping people in the world and creating opportunities than I would have ever expected when I got involved in 2014. And I think that pace is only going to accelerate. Yeah, it's definitely been an exciting ride, and I'm sure it's going to continue to be one. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, thanks very much, David. I appreciate it. Nice to talk to you again. 
It was a pleasure hosting you on Ripple's podcast, Block Stars. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about this episode or any feedback for new episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z, or to the Ripple team on Twitter at Ripple. See you around the blockchain.